My guest today is Cal Thomas, a journalist by the truest sense of the word. He is a pundit, author, TV and radio commentator, and one of the most widely syndicated columnists in America. And he marks over 50 years as a journalist. He is the best-selling author of numerous books, and every single one of them are worth your time to read. Mr. Thomas is a wide-ranging social commentator, not a Beltway insider, but who supports traditional conservative values and the American can-do spirit. Cal Thomas takes the reader on a road trip through over 50 years of journalism and American life, serving as a watchman on culture and politics and seeking to conform it to a standard that never changes in his new book, A Watchman in the Night. And as the Bible tells us to become a watchman on the wall, Cal Thomas fills that biblical term to a T. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome one of the last true journalists of our time, Ooh. Cal Thomas. Welcome. Well, Ward, thank you very much. Uh, I think I'm going to hire you to be my publicist. <laughs> I, I may just have to start my own firm so that I'll take that as my third confirmation. Uh, but Cal, I've got to say, um, wow, your new book, A Watchman in the Night, was a, a huge eye-opener in the areas of history. I mean, what inspired you to write it? Well, I thought as I approached my 40th year as a uh, syndicated columnist, which will be next April, I'd take a look back and, uh, as you say, write about a roadmap of where we've come from. Uh, one of the things that never changes, I mean, presidents change, Congress majorities change, closed styles, modes of transportation change, but human nature never changes. And I think one of the mistakes we make, especially if we're conservative and most especially if we're Christian, is to uh, believe that simply by changing uh, the captain on the Titanic in Washington, that somehow it's going to keep the boat from sinking. Our primary problems are not economic and political. If they were, they'd be solved by now. They're moral and spiritual. And at the heart of all of these things, whether it's the $32 trillion debt unheard of in the history of our country or any other nation, uh, or it's massive uh, immigration without assimilation, or it is a loss of a shared moral sense. Uh, there are lessons from uh, our history that if we don't learn, we are doomed to repeat. Very much so. I mean, for you, what has been the most major political differences you've seen between the time of 1984 to 2023 from a journalistic point of view? Well, I think uh, without question, it is the speed with which we exchange information and receive it. Uh, back when my column started, there was no CNN, there was no cable TV. There was really uh, just the startup of the internet. There was no social media. So all of that has changed and people are able to uh, communicate with each other now, share news stories, some of which are true that the mainstream media don't cover and some of which are just rumor and gossip. And you have to be careful on social media about those sorts of things or you can get burned. So the whole 24 seven news cycle uh, has changed a lot of things, including uh, politics and debate uh, and uh, how, we, uh, how we view issues and each other. In some ways, some of it's been good, but in many other ways, it's been incredibly bad in my view. Well, for you, you're a rarity because you actually had a program on CNN, and I believe at that time it was what's still owned by Ted Turner, correct? Well, I was occasional uh, co-host on a show called Crossfire with Tom Braden when Pat Buchanan was out running for president. But uh, I had my own show on Fox News for two years uh, called After Hours. It was Saturday night. 
half of the show was showbiz and half of the show was politics, believing that there was show business and politics and politics and show business. Then I was part of a panel for uh, 10 years called uh, Fox News Watch, which was a media critique show and uh, was highly rated. And uh, we had a we had a good time with that as well. So I spent a total of 19 years at Fox and uh, had the column at the same time and uh, still writing it, enjoying myself. Somebody asked me today, aren't you retired? I said, no, why would I retire from something I love to do something I don't love? <laughs> I completely agree with that. And, you know, what your book, again, for me, was a very big eye opener in the areas of the way that the book was written. And I love the way that you went year by year, which really gives the reader the perfect perspective of what change really looks like. Obama kept preaching change, but it was never changed for the better. And so for me, when as I was reading through year after year, it seems that when Obama became president, the Constitution and every law ever written either has been ignored or trampled upon. Why do you think that is? Well, there was something else. When Obama was elected, I wrote a column saying that uh, he had a great opportunity to be, in effect, the Black Moses, the first African-American president in American history with our history of slavery and uh, the Democrats' opposition to civil rights and all of the rest. It was a proud moment, I thought, for America. And I thought it provided a u unique opportunity for him to uh, lead uh, young black children out of failed public schools and give them the opportunity to have a real education and a real future. Unfortunately, he did not do that. Uh, he, like all of the Democrats, were in the pocket of the teachers' unions. And, uh, and I thought that was a great missed opportunity. Um, he, he turned out to be a, a consummate liberal, surrounded by staff members who were what I call secular progressives, liberals. And uh, I, I thought it was, uh, it, was, it was too bad. It really was. It was a great disappointment to me. I grew up and uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. at a time when segregation was still in vogue in that city and throughout the South. And so uh, I was proud of my country that we would elect a, a man like Obama who had a tremendous personality, and, uh, but I think just squandered an opportunity that could have been his if he had been something different than the usual secular progressives we've come to know. Yeah, and I believe that during his uh, presidency, would you say that that was when we saw the, the biggest shift in partisan uh, news networks? Well, not just the news networks. I, I think that, you know, from the questioning of whether he was legitimately born in America to his birth certificate and other things. And then again, going to back to what I said earlier uh, with social media, where you can put anything you want on there, any conspiracy theory, any uh, false rumor, uh, gossip or, or whatever. And you can always get a certain number of people to believe those things. I think the division was uh, accelerated. Uh, by social media and by the 24-7 news cycle. Uh, the cable networks uh, have to have something to talk about. You know, when I started out in this business in 1961 as a copy boy at NBC News in Washington, there were only three networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS. And only NBC and CBS had any ratings worth anything. And the newscasts were only 15 minutes long at night. That was it. And you had your local news, you know, at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock or wherever you were in the country. Uh, and then when they went to 30 minutes, uh, the line was, gee, are we going to have enough news to fill the time? Well, <laughs> you look back at that now, that's a, that's a real joke. So I think that uh, 
you know, the news has expanded, but uh, it, it has not necessarily gotten more accurate or more balanced. Yeah, it's become um, creating narratives that may be a hint of truth, but uh, definitely covered in things that are highly questionable. Now, well, a friend of mine says the greatest power of the media is the power to ignore. It's not just the story, the way the stories are covered and the slant uh, many of them take. If they're the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, CNN, MSNBC, uh, it, it's the stories they ignore. And, and, you know, the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing and his his uh, history, uh, which was uh, uh, pr not promoted, but reported accurately by the New York Post and censored by Twitter and Facebook and other social media uh, as being uh, hyperbole and wrong turned out to be true along with uh, the Russian collusion story and so many other things. So uh, the power to ignore is sometimes a greater power than the uh, reporting from the uh, secular progressive uh, pers perspective. Now, I absolutely believe that. Now, I know that uh, in, your, in your book, and, and I, love, I love this part of it, where our Constitution— begins with we the people, and I quote you, as you said, it does not begin with us, the government. How can we the people take our country back? I think it begins with the schooling system. Uh, I am shocked that so many conservative and Christian parents continue to send their children into what I call these dens of indoctrination, the public schools and many of our universities. We don't send our troops to Iran or China or Russia to be trained. Why would we send our children and grandchildren into the secular progressive camp and uh, believe that uh, they're going to come out the same way they went in? It's just completely foreign to me. I mean, until the early 20th century, there, were, there was a supplemental series of books called the McGuffey Readers. And in it, it had all kinds of uh, things that underscored the rest of the educational process. Everything from patriotism, loving your country. The latest Gallup poll says that uh, fewer and fewer think uh, people think America is exceptional and wonderful and they're proud of it anymore. That's a terrible thing to say. Uh, the other thing the McGuffey readers had was, uh, uh, in addition to patriotism, was uh, lo love and respect for your parents. It included Psalms and Proverbs and verses from the New Testament. Uh, but all of those things are gone today. And I always ask the question, are we better off than we were when those kinds of values and truth were taught? I think not. From, uh, from what is turned out of these schools to the, uh, which I think in many areas without a solid values foundation leads to the shootings in our streets that we see all the time, the looting, the lawlessness, the lack of respect for leaders. All of these things are a result of character not being built into our young people. Uh, it's bad enough when the secular progressives do this, but why are people like us, conservatives and Christians, helping them by giving them uh, raw material that they can turn into secular progressives? It's amazing to me. You know, Barbara Bush, uh, the late first lady, said uh, the, the most important thing in this country is not what happens in the White House, but what happens in your house. So it begins with individuals, it begins with families, and it begins with schools. We'll never have a greater influence than we will with our own children and grandchildren. I, I agree. I'm really, I'm really concerned what's going to happen 20, 30 years down the road when we have a generation who the majority of them are, prob are probably going to be raised in single-parent homes, not raised on, on the Bible, not raised with, with good morals and, and grammar and, 
and respect and kindness. I mean, when I grew up as a kid, my dad taught me, you know, how to open a door for a lady, you know, what side of the sidewalk to walk on. Those may seem trivial things today, but they're not. And I'll tell you a quick story about that. I have a friend of mine, uh, a female friend of mine who went to Randolph-Macon Woman's College before it became uh, uh, gender inclusive, as they say. And she told me once that an entire class was spent on discussing whether it was sexist to allow a man to open a door for a woman. Now that was, uh, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago. It's gotten even worse now with gender fluidity and transgenderism and all of these other things. You know, Cole Porter, the great songwriter, wrote a, a, a song in the 30s for a, a, a Broadway show called Anything Goes. And the lyric was, in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. Well, it was meta satire then, but today it could be an editorial. Anything goes. I remember the late uh, Roman Catholic Bishop Fulton J. Sheen said oh, 50 years ago or so, America is not uh, overrun by the intolerant. America is overrun by the broad-minded. So anything goes today. And if you say that this is wrong, then you're a bigot or one of several kinds of phobes or a racist or intolerant or right-winger or, or a fundamentalist or any of these other things. But I always ask, well, how's your philosophy working out? Hmm? Well, yeah, you know, I have I've spent some private conversations with some very staunch liberals mm. and I've asked them questions such as, you know, are are you as woke as the rest of them? And they look at me like. We may be staunch liberals, but the only people that are truly woke is the one percent of the media pushing out that crap. And we <laughs> don't want to be labeled that. I'm like, OK, I can understand where. Some don't like what's going on. And we all know that the media is coming down to be nothing more than it's the tail that's wagging the dog. Mm. Well, there's there are liberals and then there's the left. I mean, <laughs> classic liberalism is one thing. But the left uh, is uh, George Soros uh, types who really want to undermine and destroy this country. Now, they wouldn't say that, but their actions prove it. Uh, unrestrained uh, immigration. No nation has ever been able to survive without controlling its borders. And as I wrote in a previous book, uh, the, uh, the other thing that destroys a nation or, or a great society is massive national debt. Now, it wasn't that long ago that House Speaker Newt Gingrich and President Bill Clinton worked out welfare reform and actually balanced the federal budget. Now, imagine that today. But with the Democrats and with the media, if you try to even cut the rate of increase in spending, much less the spending itself, your demagogue is uncaring about children or the elderly or want to want to take away Social Security and Medicare. The fact is, we can't go on like this and sustain ourselves. I have recommended for years that we need an outside auditor with no skin in the game to come to Washington and do a complete review of the federal government. Every agency, every legislative program has authorization that established it. If it is living up to the intention of that authorization and can be done at a reasonable price and not be done better by the private sector, then we keep it. If we can't, we get rid of it. I remember Reagan's famous line, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. <laughs> it's a very funny line, but it's got a lot of truth in it.
Yeah, I think I think right now the auditor is probably going to need to be Jesus so he can walk in there and start flipping tables. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty good to me. It worked before, didn't it? <laughs> it sure did. Well, let me ask you this, because Supreme Court Judge uh, Antonin Scalia once said that a system of government that makes the people subordinate to a committee of nine unelected lawyers does not deserve to be a democracy. What would you call the Supreme Court now? Uh, well, I would call it uh, the constitutional court because it's amazing to listen and, and to watch the left scream and yell like a bunch of stuffed pigs and claim that the Supreme Court is acting as a legislature, which is precisely what uh, the Supreme Court did when it was dominated by liberals. The Democrats knew they couldn't get a lot of their policies through Congress, though, so they relied on the courts. Well, now that we have a six, I say we, conservative, six to three majority on the Supreme Court, all of a sudden it's illegitimate. And uh, people like Nancy Pelosi and others want to pack the court with up to 13 members. This uh, is reminiscent of what Franklin Roosevelt tried to do and failed miserably because he couldn't get his, a lot of his programs through Congress or or through the court. So uh, he wanted to pack the court and that, uh, and that failed. And I think this will too. Even Joe Biden if he remembers, uh, has said that he's against expanding uh, the uh, number of uh, justices on the court. So it's not going to go anywhere. But, you know, as a friend of mine says, uh, if the left didn't have double standards, they have no standards at all. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, the biggest travesties is to actually see someone get nominated to become a Supreme Court uh, justice mm. and have to sit in front of a bunch of clowns mm. and get railroaded and then have someone, you know, in the, the back of the room or behind closed doors creating narratives and stories that the media will run with to discredit yeah. someone. And it doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right. Someone's going to get crucified in front of that committee. Well, it's like walking barefoot on hot coals. And it's one of the reasons, uh, uh, Ward, that you don't get uh, better leadership in Washington. A lot of people don't want to go through this process. Uh, if you've ever done anything that you're embarrassed about in your life and who hasn't, uh, you you don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, treated like a child molester or something. Uh, my view is that if I were ever to run for office, which I won't, uh, but I'd put out a press release on every known sin I'd ever committed because for the media, it's not what you've done, it's what you're trying to hide. Well, that makes sense. But I want to I want to step back into your book where you wrote in 1989. And, and I want to quote this from your book. And then you wrote that we tolerate, we promote, or I should say we tolerate, even promote many things we once regarded as evil, wrong or immoral. And then we seek explanations for an act that seems beyond comprehension, remove society's uh, restraints on some evils, and one can expect the demons to be freed to conduct other evil acts. Well, it seems that Pandora's box is fully open and only Christ can close it. Your thoughts? Well, everything is on schedule. You know, if you read scripture, you read what uh, Paul wrote in Romans, what he wrote to Timothy, uh, uh, in the end, people will believe whatever their itching ears want to hear. I love that translation. And so I think we're right on course. We have two kingdoms set in an opposite direction. In the ultimate church-state moment, when Jesus stood before Pilate, uh, Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world. And uh, you see an awful lot of Christians who seem to be incredibly devoted to this world and their enthusiasm and borderline worship of a particular former president who wants to be president again, and, and no matter what his behavior, no matter 
what he says about women, no matter what he does. They say, well, look at his policies. Well, a lot of those people said character mattered when it came to Bill Clinton and his many indiscretions. So if it mattered with Clinton, why didn't it, why didn't it matter with Trump? I, I think that we are uh, on a, a slide that only now a revival uh, can uh, repair. And revivals don't come through the manipulation of human beings. Uh, if you look at the history of them, uh, particularly the book written by uh, J. Edward Orr uh, on the history of revivals in America, they come out of what he called a concert of prayer. When people humble themselves, sincerely humble themselves, and ask God to intervene, not so that we our stock portfolios increase or who we like get elected, but that he might be honored uh, among us then I think that opens the door of the possibility of revival. But frankly, I don't see any other way. I mean, I'm in the, as you mentioned, I've been in this business a long time. I've seen Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, uh, study groups, white papers, blue ribbon commissions, all of these other efforts for, for, uh, by humankind to improve themselves, none of which have fully worked. And so I think we're at a point now where if we don't have the revival, then we are on the verge of... Uh, heading for the destruction that other nations have experienced. Maybe not immediately, but uh, perhaps a slow slide like the great British empire, which on which the sun once never set and now it barely rises. Yeah, you know, and I, it's funny because just uh, yesterday morning I was thinking about one nation under God. And I guess yeah. it was probably the 4th of July when, you know, I kept thinking about that. And I'm like, Lord, we need to continue and to strive to be one nation under God, regardless of the division and the garbage that is that is coming across from coast to coast in this country. And you're right, it takes humility, it takes prayer, it takes a repentant heart for the Lord to move in mighty ways. So ladies and gentlemen, don't give up on America. If you know how to say a prayer, you say a prayer for this country and even the leadership that we may not like, God mm. can turn hearts and he can cause water to come from rocks. So a lot mm. of people in Washington, and as you know, Cal, they're, they have hardened hearts, but the Lord knows how to break through all of that. Well, he does. But, you know, it was, uh, it was Eisenhower who added the under God uh, phrase to the Pledge of Allegiance. And then we sing God bless America at baseball games and other things. I, I just always ask people, well, where, where is the example that we are a nation under God or that he should bless us? 65 million abortions, uh, mainstreaming of what uh, scripture calls abomination. Look at this gay pride month in June. I mean, uh, you had naked men in the streets in Seattle. Uh, you had uh, all kinds of displays of uh, salacious behavior. Uh, in New York, uh, there was a gay pride march where they chanted, we're coming after your children. I mean, are these the kinds of things that reflect a nation that is under God or that should be blessed by God? I think not. I think we are on another path at the moment. And, uh, you know, be not deceived. God is not mocked. What we sow, we shall also reap. And if we're tolerating all of this stuff, and if we're saying there is no right or wrong anymore, your morality is personal, even if it disagrees with somebody else, if it makes you feel good, that's all that matters. There are consequences to that, just as there is, are consequences uh, from the rule of gravity in jumping off a building. Yeah, and to me, tolerance is nothing more than putting a lid on a boiling pot and walking away and ignoring it. Yeah, well, uh, it, it, tolerance is uh, is one thing, but 
Uh, you know, I'm perfectly happy to let people live the way they want, but I'm not happy to have them come into the public square and the public schools and the media and everything else and say, I, not only do I want to live the way I want, I want you to accept the way that I behave and I want you to help promote it or at least not oppose it. Now that's something totally different. It's amazing to me that the left uh, was saying during the 1980s, during the era of the Christian coalition, the moral majority, you religious people can't impose your morality on other people. It's unconstitutional. Well, now they're very happy to impose their immorality on everybody else and saying that that is constitutional. Well, which is it? You can't have it both ways, although they try. Yeah, I actually went online one night, Cal, on, on Twitter, and I, I just asked a simple question because I saw this thread about the, the, the LGBT community and that there was a they were there was inter turmoil. And I was like, mm. okay. So I just sent a question out. I said, and, and, and this was for the, the gay community, because I just wanted to know what their thoughts were. Mm-hmm. And because of the whole LGB and the, the trans thing going on. And someone came back, it was really kind of funny. And one goes, well, LG means that they just focus on sexuality. The B for bisexual, they know there's two genders. And then as for the T, well, they're trying to, that that's not even has to do with sexuality. That's based on a gender that they can't figure out which one they want to be. So, well, here's the thing. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But anyway, but the, the gay community minus trans was telling me that they don't like the trans community because they said that's not us that's not what that they are muddying our water right and they're also muddying the waters of uh, women's sports with these men who claim to be women uh and and wanting to use the same locker rooms and uh, and participate in sports look it's a biological fact that men have a different muscle structure than women it's not about superiority and inferiority but that's why we have an lg lg what lpga get my letters right here, uh, women, women's golf and women's tennis and women uh, participating in the Olympics because they compete among themselves. To force them to compete, uh, to compete against biological males is, it ruins women's sports. Unfortunately, we have a few uh, who are speaking out uh, within the female community, but they're not getting that much uh, support from the feminists. Where, is, where are now? A national Organization for Women. Where are some of these other feminist groups defending uh, biological women? I think it's an outrage. And uh, once again, I go back to uh, what I said earlier. Why would you send your child into a school, a public school, which uh, increasingly, especially in our major cities, now uh, allow boys to go into the girls' room? And I don't think there's much uh, traffic in the other direction. And, uh, and, and why would you want your daughter to uh, share a locker room uh, with a boy and, sh- and shower with him and all this other stuff? This is just crazy. It makes absolutely no sense just on a, on a logical basis. Well, it, it seems, and you, you actually allude to this in the book, where you know, it seems that many of our problems that we see in America are based on the lack of self-control. And of course, in Proverbs 29, 18, it says, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. We see that now. So I was looking back, and and again, ladies and gentlemen, Cal's book, A Watchman in the Night, is an absolute must-read. If you love history, if you love 
you know, reading year by year, this is the book for you. And it's going to be an eye opener. And you're going to go, you're going to have a mini aha moments <laughs> and you're, you're going to be reminded and you're going to see clarity come to you. And I don't care if you stand on the left or you stand on the right. If you can read a book with an open <laughs> mind based on fact and Cal, I have to tell you, you seriously are one of the last true journalists. I mean, I think we have more citizen journalists than we have journalists in the actual media. Well, it helped a lot, uh, Ward, that uh, I grew up with some great journalists. Now, to younger people, the names will not be familiar, but to middle-aged and older people like me, they will be. Uh, the great David Brinkley, who once told me he read my column and I write well, which was one of the greatest compliments I ever had from somebody I admire tremendously. Sander Van Oker, who covered the uh, Kennedy White House and took me over there. I saw my first president live and in person, Jack Kennedy, when I was 19 years old. Uh, Ray Scherer, who covered even the Truman White House. Uh, so many others. Martin Agronsky, who uh, worked on the Palestine Post before it became the Jerusalem Post. All these men and later women had a newspaper or wire service background. They were writers before they became broadcasters. Now you've got a lot of these young people who get out, come out of journalism school, if in fact they go to journalism school at all, and they want to make six figures and uh, dye their hair blonde and be on Fox News uh, and, they, and read from the teleprompter like Joe Biden does. But uh, that's not the kind of journalism I grew up with. The other part of it is that there seems to be a revolving door in Washington. You serve in an administration, then you go on TV as a pundit or whatever. So I think this has confused the public. Uh, there are so many activists like George Stephanopoulos, who was a Clinton uh, uh, staffer, uh, and, uh, and many others who once worked for Democrats and uh, are now in the media and have been dubbed as journalists. They're no more journalists than I am an astronaut. <laughs> I love that. But I have to tell you something. There was something in your book that literally made me laugh. Now, and I'm going to let you tell the story because in 1998, Howard Stern asked his listeners <laughs> to find any dirt on you mm. and he's still waiting. So that says something <laughs> about your integrity and attribute that is literally missing today in every sense of the media. How have you managed to avoid the cancel culture mob? Well, I made a lot of friends with liberals and, uh, and my great friend, the man who opened the door for me uh, as a syndicated columnist, Tom Johnson, when he was publisher of the Los Angeles Times, later president of CNN, wrote the introduction to this book. I have endorsements from Henry Louis Gates Jr. of Harvard, who has done this tremendous series on reconstruction and African-American lives on PBS, all the way over to the right side, uh, Pat Sajak, a Wheel of Fortune. I tried to get Vanna White, but she was too busy picking out dresses. Uh, so I've made a lot of friends uh, on all sides. I genuinely like them. I never say, you know, I read you, but I don't disagree with you, which they all always say to me. But uh, not them particularly, but, but you know, universally when I meet somebody. Uh, but I'll tell you, you, you have to stay in the scriptures and you have to realize who your adversary is. When a sports team gets ready to play another sports team, they usually send out scouts to examine the strengths and weaknesses of the team they're about to play so they can defend against the strengths and exploit the weaknesses. This is what we have with Satan. He exploits our weaknesses and uh, doesn't mess with our strength. This is what C.S. Lewis got to in the Screwtape Letters. This is a great game plan 
for us to uh, to uh, uh, read and and assimilate for our own lives, we'd have a real adversary whose name is Satan, who is out to destroy us. And so, if you do things like with the Billy Graham rule, never be alone with a woman unless your wife is present, uh, which Mike Pence adopted and was mocked until, uh, you know, some of these uh, things like uh, Harvey Weinstein and others came out. And uh, you can't be attacked for what you haven't done. I'll tell you my fa favorite story. You happen to mention Howard Stern. It's a similar one. The pornographer Larry Flint, who I happen to meet a few times, not professionally, I might add, uh, rolled into his wheelchair once at Fox News in New York. And at the time, he was offering a million dollars to anybody who could provide dirt on a family values person, a member of Congress, uh, who in fact was not living that kind of life in private. So after exchanging hellos, he said, I thought you'd be interested in something. I said, what's that? He said, uh, we did a background investigation on you. I said, is that right? He said, yeah, we didn't find anything. I said, praise the Lord, uh, an absolute uh, you know, endorsement from Larry Flint. So I always love that. I said, you just weren't looking in the right place for my sins. That doesn't happen to be one of them. <laughs> well, I, I get. I mean, you better let Howard Stern know that you, that Larry Flint couldn't find nothing. So definitely, Stern will never find anything on yeah, you. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, again, in your book, um, and I want to kind of look at the word diversity because mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. But in mm -hmm. your book, you state that if a nation is built on diversity, that mm -hmm. it is a foundation of shifting sand. Yes. Do you think that diversity is the new word for racism? Well, what we have now is this code word uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. They didn't uh, put it in a different order, D-I-E, because that spells die. I thought that was very clever of them. So it's DEI. But they don't really mean ideological diversity. As uh, somebody wrote in a recent issue of Atlantic Magazine, well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Chris Light, who was president of CNN and was fired mostly because of this. He said, "If you've got, if you've got a uh, a, a a white person, a black person, and uh, and a woman who all graduated from Harvard with the same worldview, that's not diversity." Uh, so when the left talks about diversity, they're not talking about including conservatives or Christians or people with a point of view that they don't agree with. They only read each other's stuff and watch each other's networks. One of my favorite stories is a friend of mine, I think I can call him a friend, who's a columnist for the New York Times, called me last year about something. And at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, by the way, are you still writing your column? I felt like saying, yeah, are you? Uh, but <laughs> they only read each other. You know, it's just reinforcement. Now, some conservatives do that as well. I mean, I read them. I'm, I think Maureen Dowd is a great friend, New York Times. Uh, she's a liberal, the rest of her family's conservative, but I love Maureen because we both love Ireland and we, we try to plug in, you know, one of my favorite writers was Frank Rich when he was, uh, uh, the chief drama critic for the New York times and his wife, Alex, who, uh, was a terrific feature writer for the times. They remain friends. Uh, they're liberal Democrats, but we, we relate on another level other than politics. And sometimes we see the stupidity of people on our own side. So. You know, I don't hate anybody for their uh, politics. I mean, I'm, I'm out to try to model as best I can Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, you know, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He dined with what I call Republicans and sinners, the early Democrats. And to try to have a uh, try to have a sense of humor, you know, that kind of blows the stereotype a lot of people have 
about uh, followers of Jesus and conservatives that we're all rigid and angry and against things. Uh, I'm for things, or actually I'm for a person, and I want them to get to know him too. Yeah, and I think that, uh, and, and what I love about you, Cal, is that you take time to listen to an opposing view. And you were friends with Bob Beckel. Mm. I mean, what did you learn the most from Bob? And how can we all learn to listen to opposing uh, views without being a troll? Well, Bob became my dearest friend and I, I miss him. He passed away more than a year ago. Um, I had the privilege of leading him to Christ and uh, uh, he had a great sense of humor. You know, one of his great lines was, I managed Walter Mondale's 1984 election campaign to the greatest defeat in political history. Now I'm on television as a pundit. It's a great country. For 10, year, for 10 years, we wrote the Common Ground column for USA Today. We wrote a book about the same thing. Then we went out in the lecture circuit for several years and we would debate and go through these various issues. And then at the end, I would say, you know, can we get rid of this other side business? There are plenty of people who want to destroy us. Why are we trying to destroy ourselves? I said, Bob's dad and my dad were both in World War II they weren't fighting for or against President Roosevelt. They were fighting to maintain an ideal. America has always been an idea in search of the ideal. And uh, I said, you know, Bob is not my enemy. He's my friend and I've gotten to know him. And that's the other thing that we don't do in America anymore. We label people, you're right wing, you're, uh, you know, you're gay, you're straight, you're Democrat, Republican, you're whatever. And uh, we don't take the time to get to know one another as human beings and fellow Americans. And by taking that time, we open up the possibility that uh, people of a different persuasion will listen to us and possibly we can persuade them of the correctness of our opinion and the other way as well. So I just wish that uh, we would stop doing this to each other. I mean, there are people who benefit from keeping us divided in TV ratings and fundraising. Uh, in politics, but it's all a game. Most of the time they don't mean it. They just do it in order to enhance their power and their income. And it's really a tragedy considering all of those who want to destroy us from the outside. You know, when I would watch, when I watched Bob, when he was on the five, when, when the mm. five was worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> let's be honest here. But I would see Bob get frustrated because everybody was playing television and he was trying to get a point across in, in, in as much truth as he wanted to deliver it. And when I read your book and, and in that section where you talk about your friendship with Bob Beckel, I had to really think back and I'm like, wow, Bob played the liberal on the five, but he was really smart. He, he wasn't trying to play like, hey, I'm the liberal and all of you guys can beat up on me every day at five o'clock. He wasn't like that at all. He was smart. He was articulate. He was funny and he was kind. And I think the Fox viewership didn't really know who Bob Beckel truly was. Well, I think you're right. And uh, th again, this goes back to what I said earlier. We, we don't get to know each other anymore as persons. Bob had children. He loved his children. Uh, we loved each other. At the end of our debates, which were really not debates, he would get up and after I said what I said about Bob's not being on the other side, he would tell the story of uh, how we met and uh, 
how I introduced him to Christ and his doubt and the books I gave him and taking him to church. And finally he, you know, accepted Christ and people say, well, what, what difference did that make? Well, it made a, well, first of all, it made a difference for his eternal salvation. But uh, on, in the political realm, uh, I tell this story. Uh, he used to do this fundraiser every year for Kate Michaelman, of the, uh, who was then with, I think, the National Abortion Rights Action League. And one year, uh, she, after he was saved, uh, she called him and said, what are you going to do for us this year, Bob? And he said, I can't do it anymore, Kate. And she said, Cal got to you, didn't he? And he said, no, Jesus did. Amen to that. Well, for you, this Cal... Yeah, this is why Jesus dined with all those people that scandalized the religious leaders of his day. He said, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. And so he would, he would dine with tax collectors and other sinners. A tax collectors in the Jewish world of that day were the most hated people alive, especially if they were Jewish tax collectors collecting, collecting money for the Roman government. They were despised. And yet, Jesus had dinner with him. The story of Zacchaeus is a perfect one. You know, come down from the tree. Salvation has come to your home today. And Zacchaeus winds up saying, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay him back uh, double, three, four times. And you know, this is, we're missing a great opportunity here that the fields are white under harvest, but we're all, we've all retreated into our little bunkers. We need to get out there and, uh, and uh, share the love of Christ with others, with our behavior first, and the word of God right behind it. I absolutely uh, am in, in agreement with that. And, and you're right. You know, I I don't get criticized a lot. I will say that. But there are people that I have spent time interviewing that mm. I may not agree with, but I wanted to listen. I mm. wanted to learn. I wanted to understand their ideas, their mindset where their belief came from. And if we don't take time to do those things, then mm -hmm. how can we allow the light of Christ that lives in us to shine upon them and hopefully lead them in the right direction? Now, I'm not saying that everything that they say is wrong, mm -hmm. you know, but we do need to take more time listening. I mean, we live in a world where we're swiping up, swiping right, and our attention span is less than a goldfish. Yeah. Well, you you have to get to know people. Going back to, to Bob, you know, he was a recovering alcoholic. He'd go to AA meetings and every day he was very faithful on it. And uh, he'd share with me his family background and other things. So I always ask people I meet for the first time, where are you from? You know, where'd you go to school? Uh, tell me what your parents did for a living. And when you take an interest in other people, it opens up a lot of avenues for conversation. And when they figure they can trust you, sometimes they will share their heart. It's one of the reasons I had such a great relationship with Ted Kennedy. Um, he invited me to his house for dinner one night. I never, I never talked about our relationship or what he said, uh, but his press secretary called me and said, do I need to be there? And I said, no, I don't think so. And then she said, well, neither do I. And at that, at that moment, I knew they trusted me that I wasn't going to exploit our relationship for any personal gain. And I was able to, uh, you know, do some certain, th certain things that you would expect a believer to do uh, with Ted. And uh, he came to the 25th anniversary of my column at a reception in Washington. Head snapped so much, I thought uh, they'd been in a car accident, you know, whiplash. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I, I don't hate anybody, as I said, and I, I have a lot of liberal friends and uh, 
I'm proud of it. Uh, I hope they're proud to know me. Well, for you, was there a positive side to the pandemic? I think there was, uh, especially uh, when it comes to education. A lot of parents discovered what was going on in their public schools. Uh, they discovered the value of a private school or homeschooling. Homeschooling has been growing at leaps and bounds in the past few years. Uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, you've got school choice now at one level or another in 37 states. It ought to be national. It's amazing to me that the secular progressives are all in for pro-choice when it comes to abortion, but they're anti-choice when it comes to education for those fortunate enough to be born. It's kind of a reversal of uh, George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door in the early 60s to keep blacks out of school. Now liberal Democrats, many of whom have their kids in private schools, are standing in the schoolhouse door keeping young black kids and other minorities and poor people trapped in their failed government schools. Uh, how's that equity? How's that fairness? How's that diversity? How is that uh, you know, helping people get off uh, welfare and onto the fast track to success? One of the things Donald Trump said during the 2016 election to a, a black audience, he said, why, why are you still voting for these people? You voted for them for 40 years. Your cities are a mess. Your schools are a mess. Crime is rampant in your communities. Why do you keep doing this? It's a great question. I mean, this party has failed the African-American community tremendously, and they ought to try something else since this isn't working for them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, for you, is there is there something on your bucket list that you haven't accomplished yet? Oh, golly. You know, I, start, I stopped uh, planning my life uh, some years ago and let the Lord do it. He's doing such a better job than I ever did in my thirst, th first 30 years of living. Now, my wife and I travel a lot. We enjoy meeting people. Um, I think uh, I've, I've achieved one of my great interview goals when I got to interview Julie Andrews, my favorite Broadway performer. You can still see it on YouTube if you, uh, if you uh, type in uh, my name and hers. It's the biggest suck-up interview you've ever seen in your life. Uh, because I loved her and I still do. I just think she was a great talent. Uh, no, I pretty much done it all. I'm very happy. I'm living in uh, South Florida now, no taxes, no state taxes anyway, uh, with, uh, with, a, with a wonderful wife who loves me and I love her too. What could be better than that? Well, the, nothing can be better than that. I've, I've been married for... I'm I'm doing my ad, ad uh -oh. addition right now here. So Use your fingers uh, and toes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to say. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, yeah, thirty six years come September, and uh, but yeah, when you when you have the right woman by your side, you know, and you have the Lord in your heart, you know, what else do you need, right? That's right. Well, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said once again. And uh, we are only days, weeks, months, a few years ahead from seeing it on the other side. You know, just going through our one-year Bible the other day and that tremendous passage in Second Kings where Elisha and the young man are surrounded by uh, these foreign troops who want to do them harm. And Elisha asks the Lord to open the young man's eyes. And there he sees the armies of heaven sitting on the mountain there. And he said, you know, greater... Greater are they than those who are in opposition. I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I think we I think we need to understand that that this is only temporary. This is not our real home. This is not where we belong ultimately and for eternity. And Paul describes it as a we're being we're being cheered on by a mighty cloud of witnesses. Man, I love that phrase. He had, I wish I had his skill in writing. Of course, he had the Holy Spirit. So. Uh, 
But uh, that's a great, you're in a stadium and you're on the track and the stadium is full of people who have gone on before who are cheering you on. That is a tremendous metaphor. And I think we need to focus on this. You know, that old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the dearest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Why would you want to sink in sand? When you're pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. I always love those old hymns. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and ladies and gentlemen, I want you to really soak something in because Cal Thomas is the perfect example that we can have the Lord in our heart. We can have, we can allow the Lord to live in us, work through us, to touch those around us and still work in mainstream media. We can work in Hollywood. We can work in the areas and industries in which people need the Lord most. Now, everybody needs the Lord. Don't get me wrong, but there are areas in which you yourself can be a believer. So don't back down. Like Cal said, we have a cloud of witnesses cheering us on. If you're like Gideon and you turn around and realize that you're not allowed to have 30,000 troops, not 3,000 troops, you're only allowed to have 300 soldiers, but you got the whole army of heaven standing behind you. And ladies and gentlemen, Cal Thomas once said, the measure of a great writer is not how many weeks his books spend on the bestseller list, but how many years his books remain in print after his death. Now, since the days of the Gutenberg Bible, the word of God is still in print and those who read it will be changed from the inside out. And in 1984, Cal Thomas started his column with, I told God I would seek to honor him with a gift he has given me, and I trust he is pleased. And mm-hmm. I believe Mr. Thomas will surely hear the words, good and faithful servant. So ladies and gentlemen, with that, I pray that you have been blessed and pleased with what you have heard and learned here today. And Cal, I want to thank you for giving us your time and honoring us with your presence. Well, thank you very much, Ward. Uh, do pray for me when you think of it, and uh, and I appreciate the time and your mentioning of my book. Oh, absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, again, Cal Thomas, A Watchman in the Night. It is a must-read. It's available on Amazon. It's available where all books are sold. And here's the deal. We all need to learn what America is all about, and we also need to understand the changes that America has gone through and is going through. And you know how you change all that? Well, you say, dear God, you pray your prayer, end it in Jesus' name, and get ready because God listens. And as for Mm -hmm. me, I'll see you next time.